the third incident I can recall at that uh, house in the country is it's actually a late night sighting. I know that everyone was sleeping, or at least in bed, and I was just looking out our bedroom window. No central air and heat at that house, so unless it was extremely cold outside, we always had our windows open. There were screens on the windows to keep the critters out. Our our bedroom windows faced the back of the house. So there I was, just looking out, enjoying the night sky, when I noticed something on the left side of the house. It was a kind of whitish and uh, softly moving. As I kept watching, this thing just floated slowly from my left to the, my right, all the way across the backyard. I kept going until I couldn't see it anymore. From what I can recall, it looked like your typical billowy, sheet-looking white ghost. It was a pretty good size, and it was just off the ground. It was there, and then it was gone. Never saw it again. I remember telling Mom about it and asking her if she had found any sheet in the yard. She said no. The reason I asked is because we did have a clothesline outside to dry the clothes after she washed them. But even though she didn't leave clothes on overnight, it seemed like it was worth asking. Welcome back, theoriologists. The story you just heard at the top of the episode comes from a collection of personal ghostly events had by my father. He's no spring chicken anymore, and I asked him to record his experiences from childhood through to today so that we had a record of them. As I record this, Halloween is upon us. I wanted to take the opportunity to explore a topic that is truly near and dear to my heart, the haunted house. The sheer pleasure of a good ghost story aside, the phenomenon of hauntings within our homes is what began my fascination with the paranormal. Stories recounted to me by my father of his spectral encounters always filled my imagination with wonder. And to make clear, as with the story you heard at the beginning of the episode, his stories were not fictional spooky tales told to my siblings and I to scare and entertain. He actually waited until I was a teenager before sharing these stories because they were real events. Fun fact, up until just two weeks ago, I had never myself had a ghostly experience, which was perhaps part of my intrigue with his stories. I guess I was jealous and I wanted to have something happen to me. I wanted to see it. As I got older, I realized my desire for an experience was rooted in questions. Why do I believe him? Why does this fascinate me? And why do we all love a good ghost story? Well, you can see that this rational dissection of things was the beginning of how I looked at everything. Eventually, conspiracy theoryology was born. Asking why we find all these topics so fascinating, regardless of belief? In essence, The Haunted House is the origin story of this podcast. His story shaped my love for all things weird and wonderfully paranormal. This episode, I am going to share some of those stories with you. Yes, we'll talk about the phenomenon of haunted houses and eventually settle on a theoryology explaining the public fascination. But we will also take a moment to hear some ghost stories. As well, at the end of the episode, I'm going to let you in on my recent brush with the paranormal in my own home. So... Let's get to it. 
your house haunted? The sound of footsteps on the stairs, faint whispers in empty rooms. Perhaps the lights flicker oddly, and electrical devices randomly turn off or reset. Have dark shadows appeared as silhouetted human shapes? Do family members and animals in the house find certain rooms unsettling? And perhaps you've seen an apparition out of the corner of your eye. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Haunted houses have a long and storied history. One of the earliest stories which we have originates in ancient Rome. Pliny the Younger, writing in the first century, recounts in a letter the story of the philosopher Athenodorus and his brush with a haunted house. Per the story, Athenodorus arrives in Athens and picks up a villa with a very reasonable rent, largely due to its haunted reputation. On his first night in the home, the philosopher is confronted by the ghost of an old man bound with chains. The apparition leads Athenodorus to the courtyard, at which point he vanishes. The following day, Athenodorus has that location excavated, resulting in the discovery of a skeleton. These remains are the, then given a proper burial, and the ghost never appeared again. Tales of this nature have permeated throughout centuries of media and entertainment, feeling our literature, cinemas, theater stages, and televisions with ghostly tales of haunted residences. I could spend the entire episode simply listing all the epic poetry, tomes of short stories, prose and novels, plays, and the catalog of movies, radio shows, television series, and now even social media content that encompasses the topic. We won't, simply out of practicality. And I would assume already that that you have your never-fail go-to haunted house story favorites of books and movies. I will make a recommendation, though. An absolute classic tale and perfect example of ghostly haunting is in the short story The Fall of the House of Usher by Edgar Allan Poe. I recommend this because an excellent audio rendition of the story can be found at the wonderful podcast, Stories of Your and Yours, hosted by talented podcaster and a friend of the show, Sean Ennis. Once you've finished this episode, give his show a listen. That should help quench the thirst for ghost stories of the fictional and frightful bent. Now, more than any other haunted location, the haunted house resonates. Today, ghost stories and paranormal investigations are replete with tales of haunted houses and residing spirits that run the gamut from past residents and lingering family members to frightening entities and residual haunting that act as living memories of the home or the land on which it sits. Now, the following stories, again, pulled from the recollections of my father, are perfect examples of these Archetypal Hauntings
Now, there was another event that happened out there. It was it was at a house that was down the road, and everyone called it the, the Old Spanish House. It was just a vacant house at the time, and, and the title given to it came from the look and style of the house. Also, to add to the spookiness of the house, it was large. There was... Also, to add to the spookiness of the house, there was a large, round headstone-looking marker in the front yard. I mean, obviously, it's not a real headstone, but, you know, to, to boys, what else could it be? Obviously, someone was buried in the front yard. <laughs> so, my brother and I were out having a good time. I was riding my bicycle, and my brother would sit on the handlebars. So, we were just tooling around. We, we found ourselves in front of the old Spanish house and, of course, couldn't resist the urge to explore around it. After getting a good look at the grave, we decided to walk around to the back of the house. As it turns out, the back wall of the house had a huge bin that would pull in or out of the house. Uh, what looked like the laundry room was outside of the main house and in another building, so I can imagine the bin was used for like a clothes hamper. You would put dirty clothes in and then push it open to the other side of the wall. Then go outside and move the clothes to laundry to the laundry room to work on. Well, it also worked the other way. Perfect for two boys to get into and push themselves into the house. Obviously, this wasn't breaking and entering because we didn't have to break anything to get in. <laughs> so, once inside, we, we just explored the empty house. Nothing unusual except all the bedrooms were in the front of the house. And the only door into the house was in the back, close to the clothes hamper. Well, we got to the front of the house, looking all, uh, looking at all of the rooms, and it, it seemed a little spooky. I'm sure basically due to it being empty, uh, and the grave in front, and it was all even spookier than normal. We were in what was probably the master bedroom, with the bathroom in it, when we decided to go. We had started toward the bedroom door when we heard a, a roar. Yeah, you know, like a, a lion roar. That scared the bejesus out of us. We heard it again, so we ran into the bathroom and slammed the door shut. Well, after waiting for days, well, what seemed like days, again, probably only minutes that seemed like days, we knew that since there was no way to get out the front of the house, we would have to run all the way back to the back of the house to get out. So, after some convincing each other, we, we took off running through the house, jumped into the clothes hamper, flipped it to the outside position, jumped out, and out of the front, we ran. And ran straight, headed home. I grabbed my bike and said, hop on Stephen to my brother, but when I looked for him, I discovered he was running so fast in front of me, I couldn't even catch up on my bicycle. And remember, we ran around barefoot. The Caliche Road was no match for his feet. <laughs> he beat me home. I don't I don't recall ever going back to that house again. The next stories I tell about events in around the house my that my wife and I and our three children lived in in the eighties. We lived in McAllen, Texas and life was hectic. 
but normal for a family of five. Mom and dad both working, the kids going to school, living in a nice subdivision in a new house. I guess the first thing that seemed to happen on a regular basis was pictures that, would ha- uh, that we had hanging on the walls. They'd just fall off. We even had a clock fall off the wall in the middle of the night. This type of occurrence seemed kind of, oh well, on the strange list because things can come loose or nails get, uh, you know, put in straight instead of at an angle and walls can shake during a strong door shutting. But each time I'd check all possibilities of why something would fall off the wall, nothing was ever loose. No wires had come undone. Nails were good. And sometimes it was middle of the night so no doors were being slammed. The end result would be putting the picture back on the wall. Usually, these were taken care of with a shoulder shrug and a joking comment like, well, I guess we must live in a haunted house, and some laughter. But, then, one typical day, we were all headed out to go somewhere. Who knows where, way too long ago to remember. So we got into the car, which was on the driveway. I started the car and started to back out and I did a casual look at the front of the house. As I was looking at the window of our daughter's bedroom, I was completely shocked when I saw someone looking out of the window. It was a female face was looking out. The curtain was being pulled back a little, just as one would do to look out of the window. When they saw me, they closed the curtain. I said something to the effect of someone's in the house to my wife and I put the car in park and got out ran to the front door, unlocked it and from there I checked the entire house. Nobody was there, anywhere, but I know what I'd seen. The haunted house is now such a part of our culture that we've turned them into attractions even going so far as to build them and recreate the spooky experience with special effects and actors. And in truth, we can't bring up the concept of the haunted house without exploring this most visible manifestation of our infatuation with the spirit-laden domicile. Inspired by the 19th century efforts at new forms of gruesome entertainment, such as Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors Wax Museum, The idea of depicting macabre themes grew in popularity. Theaters depicted graphic scenes meant to shock audiences by the early 1900s, and soon prototypes of what we would consider a haunted house began to appear. It's estimated that there are upwards of 5,000 commercially operated haunted house attractions open each year, predominantly during the Halloween season, though some run nearly year-round. These oh-so-familiar haunted houses are actually a rather new incarnation, surfacing in the early 20th century. As cobbled together, primitive and simple renditions, they were in family homes and basements. They grew into neighborhood-wide activities. Smithsonian.com tells of these attractions as originating alongside the trick-or-treat tradition as a means of curbing the rise of mischief and, and vandalism that had come to embody the holiday. All this is window dressing, though, to the true arrival of the iconic haunted house for public consumption. That pivotal event was the opening 
of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion in 1969. It was an instant success, and shortly after its debut, there is record of over 80,000 people passing through the attraction in a single day, depicting dancing ghouls, ethereal imagery, and deceptively spooky lighting effects. This changed the landscape in a profound way. The era of haunted house attractions began, with the end not at all in sight today. Now, I bring up the haunted house attraction specifically to delineate and separate from the phenomenon of a haunted house. While the attractions are fun, and certainly a topic of seasonal interest worth exploring, they're not meant to recreate the haunting experiences typically reported, but rather to consolidate as many potential fears in one place. It's a thrill ride. The attractions are meant to provide an endorphin rush, and it's one that you know you'll live through and reach the end. In fact, according to a study published in the American Psychological Association journal Emotion, it would appear that these fright-inducing experiences reduce brain activity. They engage your sympathetic nervous system and elevate your mood overall. It's a fear-inducing high, and it's not the product of squeaky floorboards and errant footsteps down empty hallways. These days, all the stops are pulled for the seasonal attractions, with each one attempting to outscare the other, or even themselves from previous years. No, these are not the haunted houses garnering our focus onward from this point. Fright-filled they may be, the real fearful fascination is found in the possibility of our real homes holding unwanted house guests. Skeptics are quick to claim reasonable explanations for the phenomenon, crediting the power of suggestion and confirmation bias. The physical effects of toxic exposure to carbon monoxide, pesticides, and formaldehyde are also used to justify the haunting experiences as hallucinations. Okay, the skepticism is not without merit. The physiological effects of external influences are more than proven. Chemical exposure most definitely can cause hallucinations and hysteria. Additionally, the high electrical fields generated by high-voltage transmission lines, faulty or unshielded home wiring, and large equipment can cause feelings of unease, nausea, dread, and paranoia. Older homes that have settled unevenly and have angular walls that slope or jut out into tapered rooms and corners can generate a phenomenon known as the funhouse effect. This effect can also cause a sense of unease. Low-frequency infrasound, which sits below the audible sound level of most people at a high enough decibel level, can also have adverse physical effects. And don't forget mold, dust, and mildew, which can cause illness and physical discomfort. I mean, come to think of it, our homes can actually be a very dangerous place for us, even without a disembodied roommate present. The list isn't done either. The psychological effects of expectation and lore play a role as well. Our minds seek agency to things we sense around us as a primal self-preservation mechanism. A creaking floorboard or draft through a room will immediately produce a heightened attention and awareness as we identify the possibility of a threat. Couple that with legends and lore associated with older homes and that possibility of agency to otherwise natural sounds and sensations increases drastically in our minds. 
A recent ghost hunting show, in fact, was faced with just such that example when a family called them in to investigate. The family had heard stories of two tragic deaths having taken place within the property, and it shaped their expectations of what was manifesting. The paranormal team was able to determine that, in fact, there had only been one death in the home, and it was not overly traumatic or unexpected in any way. The lore of the community affected, in many ways, it created their haunting, at least in part. These perfectly rational and mundane explanations are so common that any respectable paranormal investigation team called into a home by the concerned owners will and should first exhaust these influential possibilities as an explanation before even considering the paranormal option. If you've ever wondered why so many investigators use devices that seem best suited for use by electricians, plumbers, and home inspectors, now you know why. This skeptical view certainly does provide evidence for why we might find a location haunted and why the label of haunted can come to be attributed to otherwise average homes of any given time period and age. I think it appropriate to emphasize this as I had made it clear earlier that I come to this topic with a definite bias. It is true that hauntings can be explained, and I do make sure when approaching a story of experience and a checklist of physical world possibilities. Yet, these explanations don't answer every situation. And they certainly do not explain why we find the haunted house so fascinating and why they've pervaded our imaginations for so long. Houses provide something that other locations do not. Refuge and prospect. Now, simply defined in this context, refuge is that state of having a safe and secure place to hide and take shelter from real and perceived danger. Prospect, on the other hand, is the clear an unobstructed view of the landscape around us. These two terms comprise a theory proposed by geographer J. Appleton in 1975, that of the prospect refuge theory. It's elegantly simple. Combine those two concepts, and Appleton proposes that we naturally seek to satisfy an innate desire when reviewing a space. It suggests that the spaces we find most acceptable present us with prospect while still being safe. The theory is prevalently used when studying landscape design and architecture. It's based on an evolutionary survival concept for which prey want to be safe while having the ability to spot predators, and conversely, in which predators need to be able to see their prey while not being seen. It goes back to our hunter-gatherer roots. There are a couple of good articles discussing this, which are included in the show notes, one from theconversation.com and the other on medium.com. This is what one landscape architect cleverly refers to as a womb with a view. That connotation of security and safety with the vista presented atop like a mountain on a clear day. It's nice, isn't it? Now think of the opposite. That's a haunted house. That's bad. Imagine a poorly designed house with random and erratic corners, half walls blocking a natural flow through, a lack of clear visibility of any distance through the home because of offset pass-throughs and entryways. 
an obscured front walkway that doesn't provide view of who's approaching the home, and a poorly lit drive winding up to the house that inhibits view of the road or approach, not to mention the unmanaged, overgrown vegetation and brush that's bordering the rear of the home. It's time to fire that architect before that mess happens. You know right away you feel unsafe and in danger. Now, landscape and home design set aside, think of this prospect refuge theory in the context of a haunted house. The quintessentially drafty, shadowy, maze-like confusion of long hallways and locked doors, dark corners and unfamiliar sounds and shadows, the inability to see anything clearly while having the ever-present sense that you are being watched. This is the prospect refuge theory in action. More specifically, the complete lack of prospect or refuge. You are exposed and unprotected while unable to see any possible threats. It's a perfect mix of psychological dissonance and philosophical terror. That is how haunted houses scare us conceptually. The haunted house goes even a step further. The exposure and lack of refuge comes from the idea of an apparition or entity having the ability to see you wherever you are. While prospect is all but gone because these frightening entities are completely invisible unless they want to be seen. You are the exposed prey and you have no idea where the predator is lying in wait until it's too late. These are the cues we look for when identifying a home as possibly haunted. So, this explains why we find spaces to be potentially haunted, but how does this explain the fascination? Well, I think we have to take the next step and see how this affects us when that haunting is suddenly a possibility in our own homes. How many times have you watched a spooky movie late at night only to then find yourself looking around at your own home in a new and less confident light? Suddenly the corner of the bedroom looks darker than before. The sounds in your home become more pronounced. Shadows seem to be moving with intent and awareness. Yes, the idea that our house may be haunted, that is no longer a source of refuge or of prospect, shatters, even if momentarily, the ability of our house to meet our needs. It ceases to be our home. Maslow's hierarchy of needs is a concept that many of you have probably heard and with which you may even be familiar. It's simply a psychological pyramid structure introduced to express our psychological needs. The base of the pyramid includes physical needs such as food and shelter. Next up is something more psychological, safety and security. After that is social belonging, which includes family and friendships. There are a few other levels, but they're not applicable to our discussion. It's those first three levels in which a house becomes a home. First, it provides shelter. Then it offers safety and security. And finally, it becomes a place we belong, surrounded by family, pets, friends, familiar objects, and fond memories. I use the term home, of course, knowing that it's a broad term with a wide range of meaning that can be applied to many places and locations in the course of, of our lives. At its core, though, home 
wherever and whatever that may be, is the place where you belong. It's the place you can observe the world while being and feeling protected from the world getting to you. It's that womb with a view. Home is the goal of the prospect refuge theory. Lots of places can be haunted. Schools, hospitals, hotels, mines, forests, churches, shopping malls, the list is endless. And certainly, those are all spooky and frightening and intriguing. But they aren't home. They're places we can go, and they're places we can leave. They are haunted house attractions for us, ultimately. But they're not home. Home is safe, except when it isn't. And a haunting, when unwanted, leaves you unsafe and helpless. External threats, well, they can be stopped by locked doors and windows. Lights can be turned on to expose even the creepy crawlers like pests and rodents. The house provides the refuge and the prospect. A ghost, though, is not stopped with a locked door. It doesn't need to hide in darkened corners. If your home is haunted and that entity is malevolent, the house ceases being your home. You are homeless. There is no shelter, no security, and you certainly don't feel like you belong. This isn't a story that ends with an endorphin high or a fun scare. It's a threat to our emotional and psychological survival. To counter, we do things like bless our homes. We try to protect them through religious observance. We cleanse them through ritual and will. And at the very least, we try to find out if we have a connection to the unknown house guest. We hope that their family or simply caring and friendly. When we decide that our house is haunted, we do everything we can to reclaim it as our home. We are fascinated because the haunted house is a matter of life or death, and we respond accordingly. Now, I promised you my own story, which is one that has led me to believe in the possibility of my own home being haunted. First, though, let me thank you all for joining me today. If you're new to the podcast, and I know that many are discovering this show for the first time each day, please click that follow or subscribe button so that you don't miss the discussion. You can email me at contact at conspiracytheorology.com or find me on the socials at TheoryologyPod. I'm most active on Twitter and Facebook. I want to especially thank the supporters on Patreon. I don't know that I say it enough. Without your help, this show would not continue. I don't have a flashy website or production team or research group or even advertising sponsors for the show. It's a team of me, funded by me, done out of love for the topics and interest and, uh, and wanting to delve into them deeper. Financial support, though, is always welcomed and deeply appreciated. But I do know that it's a big ask. If you cannot support the show financially, then simply share this show with others. Leave a review somewhere. Post on a social Steal a friend's phone and subscribe them to the show. Then give it back to them so that you aren't arrested. If you love talking about this stuff as much as I do, then please help me to make the show grow. Okay, so, my haunted house. The family and I recently moved into this house. We've only been in it about a year, and it was a good move. Better school for the kids, nice access to shopping and grocery stores, an active community, and nice neighbors. 
all good things. It's not an old house. It's been, you know, having been built around 2005. It's also nothing too special or unique either. Four walls, a decent kitchen layout, master bedroom downstairs, and the kids' rooms upstairs. The previous owners were a young family as well. Kids that ran around, a couple of working parents balancing jobs, bills, and family. We moved in to carry on the tradition. Most of our first year here has been the process of acclimating and settling in. Recently, though, something new has begun to occur. It was about three weeks ago that my daughter, while in the small loft area in front of her room, thought she saw my wife sitting on her bed. It was just a glimpse, but enough to make her certain that Mama was waiting in her room. She recognized the black pants. She grabbed what she was looking for and headed in, ready to talk. But as she stepped into the room, my wife was nowhere to be found. Mama's hiding behind the bed, she thought, but a quick look confirmed that she was alone. Confused, she walked out of the room and around the corner to the game room area. There she found my wife sitting on the couch watching television. Asking her mother if she'd been in her room, my daughter noticed another strange thing. My wife was wearing gray pants. Mama certainly had not been in her room. So, she told me this story the next day, and we discussed the possibilities of having a ghost making light of it, with me doing my best to keep my daughter from being frightened. That was that. We told the ghost that if she was nice, she was welcome to stay, but if she was trying to scare anyone, she would have to leave. A few days later, I was up late, and this happens when you're a part-time podcaster. I had finished up some research on an upcoming episode and I was watching some TV. Suddenly, a smoke alarm started to beep intermittently. It was that unalarming beep to indicate that the battery was low and needed to be changed. Most of you know from experience that this usually happens at the worst time, like in the middle of the night, and I went to check. I knew I didn't have any spare batteries that would fit, so I'd have to get one the next day. I grabbed a chair to stand on and check out the smoke detector. I popped out the battery to see if there was any corrosion or other damage, but it seemed fine. So, as I put it back in, I heard, in a low whisper, change the battery. It seemed to come from the alarm speaker. Well, funny, I thought. I guess this detector has a some sort of voice alarm or command message, I thought to myself, and I... I know that some higher-end alarms will give pre-programmed vocal messages, so I figured we had a nice smoke detector. Its settings were off, though, because the volume was down, and I probably wouldn't have heard it had I not been standing on the chair. Well, the next day, new battery in hand, I swapped it out, and decided to pull down the smoke detector to get the model number, so I could look up how to adjust the volume for these voice messages. Strangely enough, a quick search online informed me that this alarm was not, in fact, that fancy at all. There was no voice message or command feature or capability. What in the world told me to change the battery? Who whispered in my ear? Well, I know what I heard. I know I experienced something. I certainly don't know who or what it is. All I know at this point is that it seems to be good-natured and even helpful. I like to think that we have a new family member in the house that's as eager to make this a, a home as we are. 
Now, maybe I'm just finding excuses to protect my refuge. And maybe it is just our minds playing tricks on us. One thing is certain, though. It is absolutely fascinating. Okay, that'll do it. All the info can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon and links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. Music, as always, is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.